It is my distinct privilege um, to introduce as our guest today, Vincent Brown, who is the Charles Warren Professor of History and Professor of African and African American Studies at Harvard University. Uh, professor Brown is a pathbreaking multimedia historian. He is the founder and director of the History Design Studio at Harvard. And uh, his own written documentary, digital web-based scholarship, focuses on histories of the African diaspora, and in particular, on the history of slavery in the Atlantic world. He is the author of The Rivers <coughs> Garden, Death and Power in the World of Atlantic Slavery, uh, which was published by Harvard University Press in 2008. And a new book that is underway about African diasporic warfare. Is this currently? accurate, um, in the Americas. Um, Professor Brown uh, was also the director of research and co-producer for the, two, is it 2008, the Herskovitz documentary? 2009 documentary film, Herskovitz at the Heart of Blackness, about the Jewish American anthropologist of Africa and African America, Melville Herskovitz. Um, I first came across Professor Brown's work when I just happened to watch the Herskovitz documentary uh, when it aired on Independent Lens on PBS. This is a few years, a few years before we met. Um, it was one of those documentaries that I was pulled into from the very start, uh, in large part because Vince and the other filmmakers had taken uh, a figure um, and a story that might have appealed to just a handful of academics or intellectual historians um, and telescoped outward. Um, using uh, Herskovitz and his work to present a completely accessible and engaging story of, uh, about African Americans and the changing dynamics of power, knowledge, and history in the 20th century. Um, and I remember watching the film and somewhere in the middle thinking, um, did these filmmakers really just explain the key concepts of critical race theory in the middle of a nationally broadcast documentary. Yeah, you got away with it. So it was a very subversive film. And, um, and for someone like myself who is also grappling with how to combine media, technology, and historical scholarship in a way that addresses broad audiences, um, that film was a revelation and inspiration. And as I've got to know Vince in the last couple of years as a participate, uh, participant in the Warren Center seminars, uh, at Harvard, I've got to see a little of his current work, which continues and expands upon that mission, um, using new technologies not only as another way of presenting scholarly work, um, but um, as, as a tool of, as, as crucial tools for unearthing and giving life to subaltern histories um, and insurgent histories. So you'll see what I mean in a moment. Uh, so please welcome Professor Vivek. Um, thank you, Vivek, for that very generous introduction. I have to admit that I was a fan of Vivek's work before I ever met him as well. He came to Duke um, with a film of his, with a rough cut of a film of his called Mutiny, when I was a graduate student there. And he kind of came as this like South Asian DJ filmmaking god from New York City. <laughs> And, uh, and we were all very starstruck by him. And uh, it was really a pleasure when I got to meet him uh, and spend more time with him last year at the Warren Center. Um, so thanks for that. Um, and thanks for pointing out the Herskovitz film. I really do feel like the, one of the best things about the Herskovitz film is that we, we got away with 
with saying some things that aren't normally said on public television, um, and audiences watched it. And I really can't take credit for that. It's mostly the, the director, Lou Allen Smith, and we had an executive producer, Christine Airby Summers, whose question every day when we were working on the film was, he's a mid-20th century intellectual. Who gives a shit? And so that was the question that guided our, our efforts the entire time. It's like, who really cares? Who gives a shit about this guy? Why? Um, and I've tried to carry that question into all my work. Um, how is it that I can get people to care about my particular scholarly concerns? Um, and, 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 and still think of them as making a contribution to scholarship, right? So not trying to, to make things so accessible that I can't answer new questions um, for my fellow scholars, but also just remembering that we care because, somebody else, because these questions are important and because somebody else should care. And that's always something that I, that I think I share with Vivek as well. Um, trying to figure out ways to make these scholarly conversations accessible, because if we think they're important, maybe, they, maybe they're important to more than just us. Um, I also want to thank all the people who have uh, made my visit possible. Thank you to Ed, uh, Nathan, Andrew, Jessica, and Sue for organizing and coordinating the visit. And I'll jump right in. Several years ago, as I've been saying, I made a television documentary about the anthropologist Melville J. Herskovitz, who established the study of the African diaspora in U.S. universities. Working on that film, I became convinced that historians could apply academic standards of research and production to formats beyond the print medium. And when I first conceived the project, I shared the common frustration among professional historians who often participate in documentaries as consultants or talking head interviewees, but rarely as researchers and producer, producers responsible for the interpretive content of the works in which we appear. I surmise that if I proceeded as if I were preparing any academic work of history, conducting intensive research in archives, reading extensively in the scholarly literature on the topic, and maintaining discretion over the assembly and final presentation of the material, I could embed cutting-edge scholarship in an accessible act of storytelling. But I also began to reflect on the way different forms of presentation mediate historical knowledge. Given the centrality of visual and aural materials, including film, photographs, and audio recordings, to Herskovitz's ethnographic findings, the audiovisual format seemed like an ideal way to explore and illustrate the way sound and image shaped his thinking about cultural history. But if Herskovitz's audiovisual archive that had already existed there suggested a medium for the history of cultural associations and connections between Africans and Americans, it's been quite a bit harder for me to think about how my primary field of study, the history of Atlantic slavery, and especially in the 18th century, that initial condition for the making of the African diaspora in the Americas might be seen in relation to media practice. So this evening, I want to consider the aesthetic and narrative strategies that shape slavery's history in an age of multimedia scholarship, which invites consideration, I think, into how history has been, could be, and should be represented. By wrestling creatively and collectively with the difficult archival problems presented by the social history of slavery, I hope to chart new pathways for pondering black history's most painful subjects. This presentation considers three graphic histories, a web-based animation of Voyages, the transatlantic slave trade database, a cartographic narrative of the Jamaican slave revolt of 1760 to 61, and a web-based archive of family lineages in Jamaica and Virginia that illustrate how the archive of slavery is more than the records bequeathed to us by the past. The archive also includes the tools we use to explore it the vision that allows us to see its traces, and the design decisions 
that communicate our sense of history's possibilities. The convergence of representational media <coughs> facilitated by the nearly ubiquitous profusion of computers presents challenges and opportunities to customary ways of working. New media enable text, oration, graphics, objects, and even embodied performance to supplement or even to constitute entirely new forms of scholarly and artistic production. Historical scholarship can now include open-ended and multi-form engagements, interactive and continually updating databases, cartographic applications that enrich places with historical information, online dialogues with peers in the public, in addition to films and television programs, audio shows, and public performances. What are the virtues and limitations of these new media environments? How do changes of medium transform approaches to chronology and space? What constitutes an archive? In short, what are the new possibilities and constraints for innovative scholarship that challenges the boundaries of conventional methodology and historiography? My own work in this area has been inspired by scholars who have consistently worked around the predominant representations of the slave trade and slavery, tightly packed as they are with dull statistics, and towards some new, more evocative logic that might restore our sense of human experience to something so historically commonplace and yet so deeply alien to our common sense as the social relations of slavery. This is a special concern of my own as a new media historian with a stubborn interest in exploring and telling history from below. Historians are increasingly aware that the late dramatic expansion of computing power allows for the evaluation of great amounts of data in which previously obscured patterns may now be observed, queried, interpreted, and dynamically displayed in graphics that illustrate some of the evolving contours of social life. When animated by time-based media or laid out within temporal diagrams, such graphics can condense analytical storytelling in the form of data visualizations, setting seemingly static images in motion as historical processes are seen to unfold. To visualize data, of course, we need databases. And I'm well aware that the word data can quickly take the air out of the room. Maybe not here at MIT, but at least most rooms where I feel comfortable. <laughs> I, for one, was quite happy to have entered graduate school after the heyday of the cleometric studies of the 1970s and 1980s. By the time I arrived at Duke in 1993, social historians had observed Herbert Gutman's devastating critique of Robert Fogel and Stanley Ingerman's Time on the Cross, a quantitative econometric study of antebellum slavery. Our advisors derided the book's methods and conclusions which emerged mysteriously from a forest of statistics, equations, and formulas. We agreed with Gutman that an intelligent reader does not need to know the difference between a chi-square test and a multiple regression analysis to learn that slavery was not so benign as depicted by Fogel and Ingerman's numbers. In any event, cultural history was ascendant, and the humanistic emphasis of the 1990s seemed so much more human. Now, however, it seems that some uh, sort of turn to the digital humanities is unavoidable for many of us, and it promises a much larger wave of quantitative analysis. For cultural historians like me, the prospect of a return to more econometric, econometric studies is admittedly a source of dread. But there is also hope for an enlightening synthesis of quantitative, qualitative, and artistic methods. Perhaps histories of slavery can be graphically embodied in a way that offers a sensory quality to database archives. Fifteen years ago, 
in his now classic article on database as symbolic form, Lev Monovich argued that the database and its user interface had become the center of the creative process in the computer age. Through the interface, normally static and putatively objective databases become dynamic and subjective. What interface designers, designers needed to learn, according to Monovich, was how to merge database and narrative into a new form. For the interface is the space of rhetorical convention and invention, where new narrative strategies can be employed and information given affective and aesthetic dimensions. Now, this was not the way quantitative historians use data sets. For them, numbers offered a way to analyze history without affect, without subjectivity, and they often hoped without politics. They aspired to a comprehensive statistical record, hoping that by simply amassing more information, they could insulate their conclusions from criticism. This approach gave numeracy a bad name, and scholars of representation turned away from questions and problems that invoke statistical reasoning. But the employment of quantitative methods <coughs> wasn't by itself the source of the problem, so much as its claim to comprehensiveness, which ruled out the truth claims of work that is explicitly concerned with subjective experience. And the other issue was the unwarranted claim to transparency, as if sets of numbers were concrete facts, the givens with which we can operate on the world. The need to question this assumption has grown more urgent with the dissemination of ever faster computing tools. In a series of recent works on visual forms of knowledge production, the graphic designer, design theorist Joanna Drucker has noted a curious historical coincidence. The very era that witnessed the dismantling of truth claims by post-structuralist practice and deconstructive theory witnessed the rise of the cultural authority of, comp of computational media. Consequently, scholars in the humanities who employ new technologies are often dumbstruck by formal logical systems and whiz-bang special effects, forgetting much of what they have learned about the nature of subjective interpretation. Drucker suggests that we shift our conception of evidence from data, which derives from the Latin term for given, to capta, which derives from taken. If that usage feels awkward, it would still be appropriate to view data in a way suggested by the information designer Laura Kurgan, as representations, figures, mediations, subject then to all the conventions and aesthetics and rhetorics that we have come to expect of our images and narratives. Such a shift would help to emphasize the necessarily interpretive nature of all information, challenging scholars engaged in data visualization to recognize that interfaces are subjective conduits for the creation of meaning, not mere adornments or embellishments. Getting behind the numbers might help to ease the tension between the condescending pres presumptions of quantitative social science, the emphasis on subjectivity and experience characteristic of the humanities, and the creative um, licenses taken by the arts. Scholars can advance by recognizing the qualitative nature of data collection, categorization, and interpretation, by understanding a database is a deliberate, provisional, and even artistic act of historical research. The interface which mediates between human uses and machine protocols can be designed then to highlight rather than obscure acts of interpretation. As it disciplines, constrains, and determines the user's activity, the interface then becomes a vehicle for re revealing and supporting scholarly interpretations of the assembled archive and for giving databases aesthetic and sensory dimensions. Historians have spent much less time than mathematicians and computer scientists thinking about interface and interactivity. And so-called data-driven researchers spend far too little time thinking about how humanistic study calls their categories into question. In the space opened by these lapses, 
we have the chance to develop new modes of historical storytelling. Over the last few years, I've been working in Harvard University's History Design Studio to join a commitment to the professional practice of history with an experimental approach to form and presentation. Our goal is to embed historians' core values and methods in the innovative products of artisanship and craft. Extensive use of primary sources, attention to processes of change over time, keen historiographical awareness, and an overarching respect for evidence form the basis of projects in multimedia storytelling and analysis. Thinking creatively about the design and presentation of our, of our research, we attempt to stretch the canvas of historical scholarship. So for the rest of my presentation, I'd like to discuss several projects in history design. These compositions visualize databases of archival sources, viewing them both against the grain to portray things the sources were never meant to illustrate, and along the grain to show how they constrain and shape our knowledge. I hope to convince you that such designs can illuminate the history of slavery even while generating suggestive questions about the graphic representation of space, time, and its subject. The first few of these projects, I doubt you can read that, the resolution is very low. The first few of these projects concern the emerging field of spatial history. The historian Richard White has succinctly characterized spatial history as a study of movements, of people, plants, animals, goods, and information over time. With movement, interaction, and transformation, patterns are made and remade. Given the importance of spatial relations in time, historical analysis needs to find an iconographic lexicon or a visual language that may recover and illustrate spatial practices and processes. This calls for a new historical cartography, seen now less as a techno-scientific form of observation than as a rhetorical practice that can define, clarify, and advocate interpretive visions of the world. Cartographic visualizations can be a fundamental part of historians' analytical process, a means of doing research, generating questions that might otherwise go unasked, and revealing historical relations that might otherwise go unnoticed. This, says White, is how we can use spatial history to reevaluate the received stories upon which we build our own versions of the past. However, thematic cartography must also contend with the unwarranted certitude of many of the users of quantitative methods. Within slavery studies, we can see the problem most clearly manifested in the transatlantic slave trade database. And really, following Drucker, wouldn't it be more appropriate to call it the transatlantic slave trade captabase? Principally researched by David Eltis and David Richardson, the database is the most successful attempt yet to realize Philip D. Curtin's aspiration to achieve an accurate census of the entire trade. With records on nearly 35,000 slaving voyages, roughly 80% of all such voyages, it's an incomparable resource for scholars of the slave trade, but one that encompasses a whole host of problematic assumptions most obviously obscures the humanity of the captives. As Stephanie Smallwood, Saidiya Hartman, and others have argued, the data make it difficult to avoid thinking and writing within the terms of commercial accounting, volumes, distributions, rates, and so on, making commodified people appear as nothing more than commodities. Statistical analysis of the slave trade can in this way seem to communicate only a merchant's perspective, a discourse of exchange that seeks equivalences between units, flattening the social world and rendering it in the abstract. Gains that derive from elucidating general trends are thus offset by insensitivity to the experience of historical subjects. Analyses of scale, variation, and typicality trade the anguish and confusion of dimly discernible experiences for the perceived mastery of the facts. After such critiques, though, which I share, a question remains. What can we do with such sources? As the data do delineate scale, proportion, and distribution quite well, mapping the database can illustrate important spatial dimensions of the trade, 
Now, thematic maps have been with us for two centuries, but they have been given a new purchase sophistication and rhetorical force by the computational power of geographic information systems, which have opened new vistas for spatial history. In 2011, Eltis and Richardson published An Atlas of the Transatlantic Slave Trade, which Henry Louis Gates Jr. has called the Rosetta Stone of slave historiography. This compendium of nearly 200 cartographic representations, accompanied by selections from the contemporary literary and pictorial record, claims to provide, quote, the fullest possible picture of the extent and inhumanity of one of the largest forced migrations in history. So what constitutes the fullest possible picture? Let's take, for example, the chapter entitled The Experience of the Middle Passage, which begins with a three-page introduction to a sequence of 25 maps. Here, Elteson Richardson framed the material to come. And I'm quoting. Although it is impossible to measure psychological trauma in ways that can be represented on maps, it is possible to measure and represent mortality on the Middle Passage. It is also possible to measure two obvious ways in which the slave trade, like any form of migration, restructure the populations of both the society of origin and the society of arrival by calculating the ratio of males and females and of adults to children, both of which were dependent on the volume of migration relative to the populations at source and destination, the Voyages database also makes it possible to analyze patterns of slave resistance. And the maps follow this outline. Four maps display uh, variations in gender and age distribution. Fifteen maps show the length of the Middle Passage and the number of deaths occurring during the crossing. Two for patterns of resistance, two for the origins of the captives, and two maps for life expectancy and reproductive potential. Now, I don't think, I hope, uh, any of us here believes that this represents the fullest possible picture of the experience of the Middle Passage. But I do believe cartography can do a little bit better. And I want to do a quick format change here. And show you this. I learned as much when I worked with Jeremy Zallin, then a graduate student at Harvard, to visualize the embarkations of enslaved Africans and their arrival in the Americas over a period of nearly four centuries. In a relatively simple flash animation, Zallin created a powerful moving image of the slave trade that can function as a useful teaching aid. Admittedly, we don't learn much from this animation that we couldn't glean from poring over Elton Richardson's data set. We do get a better impression of the dynamism of the slave trade than one gains from static maps. As White asserts, visualization of this sort throws temporal and spatial patterns and relationships into sharp relief. For example, if we caption the 18th century sequence of this visualization, visualization the Age of Enlightenment, what might it suggest to our students? Or juxtapose the sequence with the, age, with the moniker Age of Revolution. Perhaps it could literally alter the default image of the period. The visualization frames the numbers within a rhetorical narrative. Many of you will have noticed a detail from the plan of the slave ship Brooks ghosted here as the total volume of the slave trade accumulates. Some will be reminded of bacteria in a petri dish as the slave trade spreads across the map like disease. Simple design choices, we hoped, add emotional resonance. The color red for embarkations from Africa connoting the bloody violence of enslavement, black to signify the making of race in the Americas. And although we only use the numbers in the database, our interface intends to evoke a different order of human feeling. After that experiment with illustrating broad patterns, I moved to visualizing, visualizing an event. This animated thematic map narrates the spatial history of the Jamaica Slave Revolt of 1760 to 61, the greatest in the 18th century British Empire. To teachers and researchers, 
The presentation offers a carefully curated archive of key documentary evidence. To all viewers, the map suggests an argument about the strategies of the rebels and the tactics of counterinsurgency, about the importance of the landscape to the, to the course of the uprising, and about the difficulty of mapping such events with available sources. Although this cartographic narration cannot be taken as an exhaustive database, for instance, it does not examine major themes such as belonging and affiliation among the insurgents or the larger imperial context and interconnected Atlantic world, the map does offer an illuminating interpretation of the military campaign's spatial dynamics. Composed from several 18th century diagrams, a terrain map and an estate map form the base map for the duration, for the narration, which graphically depicts a chronological database of locations. Contemporary accounts of the revolt, drawn from diaries, letters, military correspondence, and newspapers, yield the descriptions of the positions, movements, and engagements of the rebels and counterinsurgents. I think you won't be able to see this either, but trust me, that's a database with a data set with a lot of uh, uh, information on it. These locations were cross-referenced with multiple sources wherever possible. Latitudes and longitudes were then reckoned by correlating the base maps with satellite images. And the symbol design, in which fading tracer lines track the movement of units, tries to account for the uncertainty of much of the data. Early iterations of the map featured symbols such as pushpins that inappropriately signified too much clarity. But then blurred circles were confusing. Solid lines tracking movement did not reflect the nature of guerrilla warfare, in which rebels actually dispersed over the landscape in loose formations, and their pursuers hunted rumors and chance sightings. Yet without traces between the points, it became difficult for the map to suggest that the movements were directional at all. So the graphics ultimately attempt to balance intelligibility with the necessary ambiguity we needed to tell the historical truth, as we saw it, while maintaining viewers' sense of the interpretive character of the database. Mapping the revolt and its suppression illustrates something that's difficult to glean from simply reading the textual sources. The colonists and imperial officials who produced the historical record were universally unsympathetic to the rebellion. So the written record skews our understanding toward the perspective of slaveholders. But we learned something different by plotting the combatants' movements in space. Tracing their locations over time, it is possible to discern some of their strategic aims and to observe the tactical dynamics of slave insurrection and counter-revolt. The uprising encompassed three major phases of sustained action alongside more dispersed and sporadic skirmishes. The first was the revolt in St. Mary's, seen here, generally named Tacky's Revolt after one of its principal leaders. This was followed by a much bigger revolt in Westmoreland Parish on the western side of the island. And finally, survivors of this Westmoreland insurrection trekked across two parishes, raiding estates along the way. These campaigns adapted to geographical constraints. On the windward side of the island, the north side, heavy rainfall and dense vegetation limited movement more than on the leeward side, where the drier climate allowed for greater mobility. And still, within each phase of the rebellion, the routes traveled by the rebels through woods, mountains, hills, swamps, and rivers indicated strategic objectives. Viewed on the map, then, the insurrection appears to have been the product of genuine strategic intelligence, one that utilized Jamaica's distinctive geography and aimed toward the creation of alternative, enduring societies. Recognizing a real threat to the maintenance of the colony, the British mounted a rapid and diversified response. Drawing upon the highly coordinated efforts of the regular military, the haphazard and decentralized tactics of the local militia, and the rough terrain warfare of Maroon allies, each of which traversed the landscape in distinctive ways. 
Now, there are obvious limitations to plotting a turbulent slave revolt on a map like this. By using British maps that highlight the placement of forts, towns, and estates, our maps tend to reify colonial geography. Even more fundamentally, cartography itself presumes the natural exist existence of points on a grid, much as history naturalizes the timeline, though these are both ultimately folkways for representing time and space that have more in common with slaveholders' epistemes than with those of their slaves. The spatial schemas of the rebels, their landmarks and pathways, and their sense of temporality are probably irretrievable in cartographic form. Moreover, maps orient viewers by offering an orderly aerial view. But gazing down from above makes it hard to see chaos and confusion, the most essential features of a protracted insurgency. Of course, if this limitation arises from the sources, it also affects the nature of guerrilla warfare, because uncertainty was, after all, the rebels' best weapon. Quantitative reports, therefore, must be taken as impressionistic. Like words, numbers produced during the disorienting events were the products of bewilderment, fear, and rumor. So if the map draws a clearer picture of the extent and contours of the insurrection, it cannot convey the ambition, desperation, shock, dread, cruelty, bloodlust, and sheer mayhem of the experience. These are matters best left to the historical imagination of viewers and readers. The last project I want to discuss this evening maps reproductive relations in time rather than events in space. Produced by History, of Des uh, History Design Studio, Two Plantations, Diagrams, a Database of Enslaved Life Histories compiled by the historian Richard S. Dunn. For decades, four decades in fact, Dunn poured over the annual inventory list of Mesopotamia Estate in Jamaica, produced between 1762 and 1833, and Mount Airy Plantation in Virginia from 1808 to 1865, piecing together a portrait of life and labor on these two plantations. In crumbling account books and fragile scraps of paper, Dunn found the names of more than 2,000 men, women, and children listed alongside the mules and cattle and pigs. With painstaking care, he reconstructed family lineages through four or five generations for as many of the people as he could. And this website displays his results for 431 enslaved people in seven multi-generational families. It's a project clearly marked by its origins during the Cleometric era of the 1970s. After reading Time on the Cross and its critics, Dunn says he was determined to find a non-mechanical, non-statistical way of handling his data, to present the enslaved as people rather than as digits. He says, adopting an old-fashioned method, I entered the correlated year-by-year -year information from the inventories into four large loose-leaf ledgers. As I slowly worked my way year by year and column by column through the two sets of inventories, I constructed lengthening annual reports on more than 2,000 people, usually ending with final illness and death. I was always adding new rows for new babies or newly acquired slaves while terminating old rows. I was tracking two communities of enslaved men, women, and children in slow motion. Now the inventories themselves, it must be remembered, exposed only the barest traces of enslaved existence. But by interpreting such records against the grain, the website's simple family diagrams and biographical sketches highlight personhood, connection, and belonging rather than proprietary accounting. And this is one of the hand-drawn charts that uh, Richard made from his own research. 
The site summarizes the enormity of the tragedy wrought by slavery upon the lives of individuals and families, showing that the people at Mesopotamia Plantation and Mount Airy Estate suffered immensely but in different ways, notwithstanding their attempts to maintain domestic integrity, well documented a generation ago by the historian Herbert Gutman, these were families in crisis, beset by rampant sickness, overwork, high mortality, and disruption. At Mesopotamia, where the death rate was far higher than the birth rate and fatherhood went unrecorded, the diagrams and biographies highlight the demographic catastrophe caused by sugar cultivation. In Virginia, the natural increase of the population merely allowed slaveholders to move slaves as surplus capital to new plantations in the expanding zones of cotton cultivation in the Deep South. In both places, people mourned the dead and dislocated as they lamented the breakup of their families. As an interpretive interface to Dunn's data, the site allows us and users to contemplate its design alongside the nature of its sources and the families and individuals it represents. By refusing to assume that these charts speak for themselves, we hope to highlight interpretive possibilities. The site raises questions about the history of slavery, to be sure, but also about its representation. We seldom see genealogical charts for families who put down few roots. Their very scarcity suggests that perhaps the interface implicitly raises a more basic question. Are family trees even a proper way to diagram enslaved families? Now it must be recognized that Dunn's historical approach has important advantages over customary genealogy. Starting from 1762 or from 1808 and working forward through the records rather than backward from the present as we normally do provides a valuable perspective. We see not only the people whose progeny connect then to now, but also how so many possibilities were foreclosed by circumstances. What of the abbreviated timelines of mothers whose children died before adulthood? Of children whose fathers are unknown because they were unrecorded or were sold off or dead before their time? What might all those children have done if they had lived a little longer? But family trees have inherent constraints. As Joanna Drucker has noted elsewhere, even at their best, genealogical charts reify generational distinctions, making family histories into a series of marked levels, one descended from another, and with members entering the family through marriage often represented without roots or connections of their own. Complicated kinship relations can't always be represented within a branching structure of nodes and lines, and not necessarily within any other organic metaphors with their linear narratives of evolution. Genealogical charts were, after all, conceived to mark the succession of royalty and the inheritance of property. Do we need a wholly new kind of diagram for families who were property, who were routinely violated and interfered with, whose lines of descent are so broken and tenuous, and whose resulting structures of kinship could never be based solely on blood relations? Such thorny questions are, I think, more valuable than easy answers. For despite the challenges of viewing slave life through plantation data in ill-fitting graphic forms, the more we try, the more we may discover. Now, one might protest that the graphics I've discussed this afternoon are reifications of reifications. How can a cameraman purport to represent historical reality when taking a photograph of a painting of a statue? It's a fair question. And yet I'm smitten by the tragic compulsion common to historians of the oppressed. Although we may never be able to give a satisfactory account of the human experience in slavery, we nevertheless continue to try. If we care to apply new tools to this effort, what's the best way to push that boulder up the hill? 
How can we achieve a fuller understanding, if not the fullest possible? Perhaps we can begin by recognizing a few major obstacles. First, the certitude of empiricist historians, represented by the claims made for the slave voyages database. And second, the fatalism and paralysis of those who think that our inability to know the past with certainty means that we can't learn anything new and useful at all. We must also overcome the stubborn impulse to work alone. As few of us will have all the requisite skills for researching, designing, and building multimedia works of scholarship, as I've been painfully aware doing all of these projects, we will be forced to collaborate more closely with our peers who know things we don't know and have skills we don't have, allowing us to benefit from the same kinds of collective thinking that have enriched and enhanced the natural and computing sciences. Collaborative scholarship will necessarily make up a greater proportion of our portfolios. These projects have also compelled me to think more deeply about the possibilities of the digital humanities for the kind of history that interests me. Those of us working on subaltern populations rarely have the kind of big databases and big data sets that inspire projects in text mining, topic modeling, or network analysis. And our data are debased, compiled from the records of the slavers, the racists, the exploiters, and their bureaucrats. Yet there may be a virtue to this limitation. We can never confuse our sources for the things they describe. And this encourages us to emphasize their qualitative nature. Without big numbers to crunch, scholars must exploit the potential of digital tools to craft scholarly designs that appreciate the interdependency of interpretive knowledge and aesthetic expression. The constraints of the archive compel more careful attention to the form and function, the design, of our scholarly works. As I've said, design can soften the tension between the quantitative approaches of social science, the interpretive bent of the humanities, and the creative imperative of the arts. For such a synthesis to occur, historians will have to think more carefully about the creative choices that go into the representation of our sources, and about the aesthetics of change over time. Scholarly design can also function as a method for generating questions about the most appropriate graphic vocabulary for the phenomena under investigation, and about how we see relationships and interactions in space and time. Thinking through the formal properties of illustration, it turns out, is also a means of doing research. Responding to Drucker's call to reassert humanistic interpretation and digital aesthetics, we may produce even more revealing visualizations closer to human experience and humanistic values. Now, production is one thing and consumption is quite another. Working across media compels, I think, consideration of the way digital scholarship reaches and informs its audience. So in June 2014, I began tracking usage of the Slave Revolt website with Google Analytics. Between June 2014 and April 2015, more than 6,400 users in 121 countries and 1,870 cities viewed the site, which continued to record between 1,000 and 1,500 sessions a month. In April, there was a large spike in traffic, so that at present about 50,000 users in 160 or 70 countries uh, and 6,600 cities have viewed the site, which continues to record 1,000 sessions a month. For the Two Plantations Project, the numbers are 7,800 7, users in 112 countries and nearly 2,000 cities since its launch in August 2014. Now, some of this traffic moves through such predictable channels as language, urban communications infrastructure, and national interest. But the breadth of distribution is quite impressive. For the Slave Revolt site, the top three cities for viewer location are New York, London, and Toronto, and Kingst with Kingston in the top ten, as one might expect. But of course, a book published in Cambridge, Massachusetts would take much longer to, teach, uh, to reach a comparable audience, even in London and New York, 
let alone Kingston, Jamaica. More significantly, the top 10 cities account for just 15% of all sessions. If 83% of all users have accessed the site from the US, United Kingdom, Canada, or Jamaica, single sessions have been recorded as far afield as Bahrain, Monaco, Madagascar, and Rwanda. The compression of representational space represented by these figures has always been a great promise of the World Wide Web. The same is true of the compression of time, with perhaps less happy results. My friend in Bahrain spent nearly half an hour with the project. Maybe he just had it on his screen and walked away. I have no idea. But the 34,000 sessions in the US set the average at 46 seconds. So what can you possibly learn in under a minute? You can glean a summary argument and an impressionistic sense of its content. You can feel the attractive pleasure of novelty. These things happen quickly with the interpretation of condensed symbols. But I wonder if such speed and ease of access the annihilation of space by time, works against the historian's effort to teach about complex processes that unfold unpredictably over space and time. More hopefully, there have been several thousand repeat users, whom I expect are returning to the site in the context of classroom assignments or research projects of their own. In other words, the project is finding a place within a larger social and educational ecosystem. This suggests that to take full advantage of media convergence, New media projects must accompany other texts, teachers, classrooms, and conversations. Digital modules are teaching aids, not replacements for traditional education. Now, the point should be obvious, but I think it has to be stressed at a time when university administrators seem eager to use digital technology to downsize and de-skill the educational workforce. Instructors must still impart old-fashioned methods for reading and interpreting sources. Libraries need to offer the institutional stability necessary for the management of continually updating platforms. Students will either expend the effort it takes to learn or remain uninformed. My own experience has convinced me that we will need more human resources to accompany digital content, not fewer. Finally, projects like this cannot help but have some effect on what slavery means to us. Indeed, they have particular implications for slavery's history given the long-standing debates about the role of statistics and the limitations of archival sources for scholarship on slavery. Some of you know this guy. As the computing theorist D. Fox Harrell expects, highlighting the qualitative nature of databases will allow data structures based explicitly on subjective human worldviews to become the back-end inputs for a new discourse on black history. By the way, I always have this slide in this talk. I didn't just put this in here to kiss ass today, so <laughs> just so you know. The graphical histories of slavery I've shown today direct our attention to the processes of exploitation and domination that lay at the foundations of African American history. The appeal of these resources, far beyond that history's conventional locales and audience, should remind us that slavery's history is a shared global history, not just the particular history of black people. After all, as a long list of scholars that includes Walter Rodney and C.L.R. James and W.B. Du Bois has shown, Slavery helped to build modern capitalism, which still feeds upon war, dislocation, and the distortion of intimate relations. Using the technological fruits of late capitalism to interpret slavery across multiple media platforms, yes, even wielding the truth effect that accompanies novelty and high production values, cannot help but to remind people that slavery's present meaning exceeds the story of the African American people. And in this sense, I hope designs like these can find a humble role to play in a continuous struggle for justice now more than four centuries old. Thanks.
Mm -hmm. uh, well, yeah, the, yeah, thanks for the illuminating talk and, and then also for the humbling slide. So what I want to uh, ask about is uh, you know, a lot of the, the multimedia works, uh, they're, they're, they're information visualization uh, works, they take multivariate data, uh, data mm -hmm. and then representing it in a, in a compelling way and using all the affordances of, uh, of visual design. But I also get asked a number of times, say, to be on the advisory board or join projects where people also imagine using different types of immersive technologies for mm -hmm. humanistic games, including uh, history. So that's uh, using virtual reality to, 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 to think about past, past events or using game-like technologies. And, and, and so uh, at one point you also mentioned you know, sort of what you felt is best left to the imagination, and, mm -hmm. and there's a kind of a tension there. I think probably a, a dis disciplinary tension, and then also you know, maybe sort of personal you know, values uh, about uh, fidelity to the original material. And, mm -hmm. and so my question is, what do you think about the role of these different kind of immersive technologies and the kind of subjectivities that those technologies could uh, could allow? And so, and that's not any one mm -hmm. particular uh, type, but just uh, again you know, recreating that, which was embodied, we don't have access to anymore, but mm -hmm. uh, you know, could we begin to, it, would that play a role in, in uh, historical multimedia work too? I think that's a fantastic question. And, and partly my answer is just gonna reflect the fact that I'm not as far advanced in that field as you are, and so I haven't worked with those kinds of technologies, and so I haven't sorted out how I adapt my principles to those technologies. But let me go back to what my principles are. And I think you indicated it in, partly in your question, which is I'm, I'm very concerned that we find a way to get our viewers, our users, um, our watchers to engage primary sources themselves, to think about how it is we know what we know from these particular sources. Um, I'm concerned that when we, when we, when we, when we, when we world build so well um, that we, we, we uh, encourage people to think that they are seeing what was, we collapse that distance, right? Um, perhaps too much. And I want to explore that distance. Let's see if I can make that a little bit clearer. In using this map, uh, in making this slave revolt map, we at one point considered the idea of using a Google Earth map, right? Um, so that you could actually get a more accurate representation of what Jamaica was. Now, never mind the fact that Jamaica's landscape has changed in the intervening couple of centuries, um, and that you know where you'll see a city now, there wasn't. Even the course of rivers changes slightly, and bays change, and all of that. The thing that concerned me most was I didn't want people to have a sense that they were seeing the real Jamaica. I did want to create that critical distance. And so we used the animated map. We used the, uh, the 18th century map, the hand-drawn map, produced in the 18th century. And in fact, it was produced in 1763 for the governor who suppressed the revolt. So it itself is a kind of a primary source. So you, your entry into that world is something from the past itself, which I think continues to remind people that you know, you're not getting unmediated access to this. And contemplating that mediation is something I always want to have happen when people engage historical work. Right. So the mediation is the immersion in the world of the I mean, I mean let, me, let, me, let me risk getting in trouble here, because I don't know the kind of principles that you operate with when you're building virtual reality projects. But if, to the extent there's an attempt to create a seamless virtual world right, that can, can represent the truth of the past, I would like to introduce like more distance. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. It's partly because I'm, you know, as, as I did with the Herskovitz film, 
one of the ways, one of the reasons we made the film the way we did is because, um, just to go into that a little bit, when this guy Melville Herskovitz began his career in the 1920s, people assumed that the slave trade and slavery had denuded African Americans of any ancestral heritage they might have. Negroes, right? They weren't African Americans yet. The Negroes had no ancestral heritage of their own because of the depredations of slavery. The any difference you saw between them and whites in cultural practice and behavior was merely a matter of their racial inability to fully assume and practice white norms and values. So Herskovitz raced around different parts of the Atlantic world with a different idea, trying to document formal cultural connections between Africans and African Americans. And what he did was he shot film footage in West Africa, and he shot film footage in the Caribbean and South America, and collected material from the southern United States. And then he would juxtapose what he found there. So he would find a dance in Dahomey that looked something very similar to a dance-like method of planting seeds in Haiti. And when he juxtaposed them through that montage, he projected the third image, which was a history of cultural connection between these two practices. So his method itself was cinematic. His idea came from using cinema. So we thought that why not, you know, cinema, the audiovisual medium would be the best way to actually represent this kind of practice of knowledge making. Um, and that became a very important part of the film to us. So it wasn't just the story of his life, it wasn't just the truth of his work, it was how do we, how do we index those truth claims? And shouldn't we think about the way we index our truth claims? And shouldn't we think about the way we do it with numbers, the way we do it with graphics, just as we do with print? Right. I think it's just that a lot, a lot of the kind of works in uh, VR and certain types of gaming, but the conventions of using the medium are, are related to aiming for kind of naturalistic realism, and I think that's what you're reacting against. You know? yeah. So yeah. it's establishing a set of conventions. I just didn't want to accuse you of that without without knowing what I was talking about. Right? <laughs> and so that can that can immerse people within in the world, say of uh, of the archive, you know, for, for example, and sure. narratives yeah. where you have. Uh, documents, you have to find the tale of, of the narrative, put pieces together. So there might be ways to have that critical distance where you're using those uh, materials that aren't just about creating that kind of a, a virtual world and naturalistic mm. realism of mm. a past we can't uh, access. You know, so mm. th there might be other ways to use this kind of a, a, a medium. That yeah, and, I'm, and I'm open to that. All I said is that uh, what I'm saying is that I want to maintain those principles and see how I can work <coughs> practically through other kinds of media. Mm -hmm. I actually had a, a very similar um, set of thoughts to, to Fox um, in terms of really, you know, thinking about um, your comments about the maps being this little eagle-eyed view, mm -hmm. right? And and so much of what um, productive work of the of bringing those maps to life in in your project mm -hmm. was about. Um, understanding the, the choices and actions of the, the rebels um, in yeah. relation to their knowledge of uh, terrain, right? Yeah. And to regain a sense of, as opposed to, as you were talking about, these colonial documents mm -hmm. that that, um, that treat the, the rebels in a particular way to mm -hmm. actually see the kinds of choices that they're making in relation to the terrain and their knowledge of the mm -hmm. terrain. And so. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, what Fox is suggesting to me also, you know, I was thinking, well, are there segments of the, are there areas of the island that haven't been changed mm. where you could actually go to those areas 
and and film material that could be create that could be incorporated into a ground ground eye view rather than a field eye view, but used in such a way that that is not making a kind of truth claim in terms mm -hmm. of this is this is exactly what it looked like. Right. Yeah. Or this is exactly I, I, so I'm not yeah. saying that, that I don't think that's possible yeah. um, or even desirable. Uh, it would be expensive. And so um, kind of given the limitations of budget that I had, this is the area that I wanted to explore. Had I you know, a filmmaker's budget um, to do that, those are exactly the kinds of questions I would ask um, using the camera. Thanks for a great talk. Uh, I'm interested in the connection between sort of your artistic practice as a documentary filmmaker mm. and sort of working with quantitative data, you know, mm. because these are two different ways of telling stories. Sure. And I'm wondering if you see if there's a connection between sort of these two practices and how that might look like. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I have not theorized that for myself. Um, primarily, I just kind of intuit my way forward, as I said, based on the principle and based on the questions that I have. Um, and I find people who know the things that I don't know. So I have no training in statistics, and I'm not particularly a quantitative historian. Um, I see myself more as a storyteller whose um, interests are more in kind of nuance and rhetoric than they are in the analysis of the numbers themselves. Um, having said that, where I begin is always, what's the question I have? And what kinds of methods might help me answer those kinds of questions? And when and where I have to find, if I have a quantitative source, right, then I have to find somebody who can help me interpret that. And then find a way to represent that interpretation artistically, um, again, using kind of my own particular style. As I said, I really like the Lev Monovich piece for making that connection between, between database and data sets and the narrative conventions of cinema. And because I had already been working as a filmmaker, that was very appealing to me. So the map itself is really just a 264 frame animation, right? step by step drawing those lines on the map. Um, so I'm not sure where I could, I, I think I need to think about that a little bit more. But as I said, I'm not, I'm not particularly a numbers guy. Um, I just know that a lot of the, the kinds of historians that I was trained by and have been working with and have been most comfortable with in the last several years probably have uh, too dismissive an attitude toward quantitative history, and I really want to kind of re-engage it. So I think that you know Richard Dunn is a as someone who was very involved in the quantitative histories of the 1970s, um, and in some ways, his book still wasn't satisfying to a lot of the kind of people I identify with. He got a very critical review in the New York Times by one of your mentors, um, but I actually wanted to engage him because I thought that we could do more with those numbers then simply dismiss them as unrepresentative of the way we talk about slavery now. And, and Johanna Drucker also has sort of an, an approach to that because she's, she's clearly saying sort of the captive versus the, the data yeah, yeah. Uh, debate, uh, you know, that the, the subjective element is missing in yes. those representations. In timelines, for example, there's a subjective time, how we interpret time. So I'm wondering, you know, if that might be a really interesting approach to even in the spatial layout yeah, and yeah. the spatial mapping to get these subjective experiences, as you talked about, into that mix. So that's great. And, and I should thank you, by the way, because as you can tell, Joanna Drucker has been very inspiring to this work. And I first encountered her work at the conference you organized at the Hyper Studio in 2010 when she gave a keynote address, along with Lev Monovich as well. 
Um, so that was in some ways the kind of initial inspiration to, to that project there. Um, but yes, that map operates on the graticule, on the grid, and it operates on a timeline. I haven't, because I don't have any evidence, historical evidence, that will give me a sense of how I might represent the rebel's time and what kind of um, temporal structure I would need to visualize that. We thought, look, it's going to be enough to kind of use these conventions everybody's familiar with um, because it's already going to be strange enough to see. But that's something I'm certainly interested in and open to. The idea that spatial schemas and, and senses of temporality are different for different people. And we would like to design interfaces that represent that. Um, but again, we have to start from someplace. Perhaps, with, as Fox is doing, start from oral interviews. Right? If, you have, uh, if you have people telling stories, you could begin to imagine how those stories encompass a different sense of temporality. Because as we know, historians have a kind of genre convention for representing time. And the first principle of the historical history writer genre is that time is fateful, meaning that things that happen in one moment can have an effect on things that happen in subsequent moments, but the reverse is not true. Right? That what I do today can affect the past. And that's a convention, because we know that people don't always think of time that way. Time doesn't always have to move on a linear, non-varying metric forward. right? There's retrospective time. There's God's imminent time. There's recursive time. Um, but those don't really factor very much in the historian's way of representing time. We tend to think about the timeline and then find our different places on it. But the timeline is always assumed. It doesn't have to be that way. And certainly in humanistic interpretation, one could represent time and space in, in multiple ways. But operating as a historian, I have that genre convention, or otherwise I won't be intelligible. Uh, you, and then you, and me. Um, Hi. Hi, I'm Karen. Thanks for a great talk. Thank you. Um, one of the most powerful invocations of history I've seen this year was um, this pink piece of paper that I think Harvard students placed on a monument outside Wadsworth House. Mm. And the monument mm -hmm. has the name, like, names of Harvard presidents and other historical figures who've been in the house. And the piece of paper said something like, this house was also a place of enslavement and had mm. the names of slaves who had lived in mm. the house as well. And it was based on the Harvard and History Project that, I mean, the Harvard and Slavery Project that went on um, <coughs> years ago at Harvard. And your talk sort of reminded me of this, because even though this was obviously like a very low-tech example of presenting history, it mm. was still, it was um, sort of disruptive, and it was very powerful. And I'm curious about um, how you see new media not just presenting history and but possibly disrupting the ways that history is like publicly presented? Yeah. Um. That's a great question. It's, and it's an even better question for architects than for historians. I'm probably going to be teaching a class with Julian Bonder um, sometime in the near future, who is an architect who um, designed a slave trade memorial for the city of Nantes, which is one of the largest slave trading uh, ports in Europe, especially during the 18th century, which is a fantastic memorial. And we want to teach a course on exactly that, how it is that we use space, disrupt space, and incorporate history into that. Have you seen Michael Moore's new film, Where to Invade Earth? I just did, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, he's got that fantastic example of what the Germans do, yeah. which is to remind people that the Holocaust happened here, in this space, in this place. This is the name of the person who lost their house. These are the people who were shipped to the camps. And he wonders, and I wonder too, why we don't do more of that here. Um, we have one very, very small uh, museum to the history of slavery that a private individual uh, or, uh, uh, built down in the South. It's been open since 2015. It's kind of incredible. Yeah. 
given that the United States was really the largest slave society in the history of the world. I mean, I think at its height, we had four million slaves in this country, more, bigger slave population than any other country in the world, larger than the, the slave population of ancient Rome. Right? So despite being the beacon of freedom, it's also the largest slave society in the history of the world. And yet, we suppress that memory, um, which seems a shame in all of the ways that, that Michael Moore pointed out. So yeah, I think that's, a, I mean, that's an important thing to do. And I'm going to be thinking about that more with Julian, hopefully next year, but maybe the year after. Yeah, I, I have what I guess is maybe a, a, a one to ask you sort of an intellectual history of digital humanities question. You mm, should ask him. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe it's him, yeah. But I mean, your take on it, because I think what's interesting, so I'm a sociologist, but I'm a qualitative sociologist. Mm -hmm. so wow, you're lonely. Yeah. <laughs> so many of you guys anymore. Yeah, that you're hitting on that point, because what, what's so interesting to me is when I hear your talk, sort of quant and data configured here, and then the humanistic world here, I hear, I hear that slice gap where those of us who are ethnographers live, mm. In, in things that are very resonant with what you're talking about and yeah. thinking about. And I, so my intellectual history question is just, do you have a sense that digital humanities is aware that there is a contingency within the field of social science that actually is, is deeply resonant and thinking about the same things humanists are now thinking about mm. in relation to digital media forms? I don't know. I mean, I think that's happening now. I mean, I, I guess I think I'm part of that. I'm certainly, as I said, I'm inspired by the work that Kurt has done and by, by Joanna Drucker's work and, and by Lev Manovich's work and, and others. Um, Alex Gill at Columbia. So there, there are a lot of people emerging in this field who are thinking just that way. Kind of how do we use these quantitative tools um, to, to represent aesthetic and, and interpretive possibilities? But I don't, I don't know how to really configure that. I and mean, I think you have a, probably a better sense of exactly what's going on and who all the players are. Um, I'm just kind of feeling my way forward, working with my materials and my particular historiographical questions. Right? So I start with, what do I want to know about slavery? What are the events I'm trying to describe? What sources do I have? And you know, what new ways could I figure to, to describe them? And I always start really from that as opposed to from the technology itself or the, or, or the media themselves, right? Because um, it's my perspective partly that, look, I don't have the technical skills to do this on my own. Um, and I want to try and turn that into advan an advantage, right? So in the same way that kind of not every film producer is the best cinematographer or the best writer or the director or the actor, right? But they know how to put those things together based on a vision of what they want to see on the screen. I have a vision of how I would like this history to be interpreted and how I might like to see it. And then I have to go out and find the people who can help me actually manifest that vision. Um, you know, with the humility <laughs> of saying, well, look, I'm not, you know, not going to be the most technically sophisticated or capable person um, on set. Right? Do you want, will you chime in on that? Because I, 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 I do want to know that, like, what's happening and where people are. Like I said, your conference in 2010 was really my first introduction to this field. Yeah, well, not a ready answer right now, but I think, yeah, as you're absolutely right, there's a lot happening in, in, in that space. And I think, uh, you know, there are also many divergent, you know, pushes and pulls in, in, in different directions, you know, on, on that question. Mm. Um, but, you know, that's probably something for another big discussion right now. I don't have a, a quick answer to that, but I think it's, it's clearly something that could be researched a little more, and there's, there's a lot going on. 
And there was another question over here. Hi. Well, I'm, a, I'm coming at this from um, literary studies. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've also been doing some work with um, mapping, um, not as a, from a technical side, but I'm, I'm thinking of something that Robert Talley says about mm -hmm. the history of, of thought. Uh, he's a sort of critical geographer, and he talks about, I'm so, so oversimplifying here, but he talks about how po postmodernism changes history from a matter of time to a matter of space. Mm -hmm. And he looks at mapping as a way of representing uh, events in space. And I was thinking that in relation to your spatial history and also to what we're saying about families and family trees, mm -hmm. uh, thinking of when I teach slave narratives or Toni Morrison, that, that um, there's this implied um, conflict between a linear notion of uh, historical time and the bloodlines that you talked about, the fact mm -hmm. that so-and-so is the son of so-and-so. Um, and what you can map spatially by showing how proximity determines family relations. So you were brought up by that person, that's your mother, even yeah. though that person might be your aunt or your cousin or a man. Um, so I think what, you, what you've done here is enrich the way we think about um, family history to include spatial proximity as well as a chronological model that, yeah. as you point out, is really inappropriate for the people you're so, yeah, and it, I mean, it's an important question. Um, of course, David Harvey talks about, you know, space being time all the, anyway. So, like, we're always talking about space-time as opposed to space versus time. And I very much believe, also with the anthropologist Timothy Engel, that, you know, places don't have locations, they have histories, right? And those histories are made by the itineraries of the people who move through them. And all of those various itineraries come together to constitute a region. That's kind of, I, I think about space as being already temporal. So, but the second part of your question reminds me that we had this failed experiment um, in the Two Plantations Project. And our original, I worked with, a, with an information designer, a guy named J.T. White, who was an architect, uh, who was trained in architecture himself. And we were trying to, we sketched out on a napkin an alternative model for representing family relations, where the idea is that we had um, small black dots when people are born. And, and they, if they die within the first year, they disappear, right? As they grow, they get grayer, as, you know, as we get grayer, as we get older, but they get larger. And if they have more connections, more familial connections, if they live in longer places, um, um, they may endure longer even after they die, as they endure in communal memory. So you see the kind of ghosted outline circle right here is someone that has passed, but lived long enough, had enough children, had enough familial kinds of connections that, um, that they remain in living memory. And our idea was to try and represent kin a different way. Um, so we kind of got as far as this wireframe, thinking about how it was, and then we began to work with our, our web designers. And, it was, and they were not historians, they were young guys um, who, were, who were fantastic, but this idea didn't compute. Um, I mean, they hadn't spent much time reading about genealogy, they didn't know much about the history of slavery, like the kinds of things we were coming at them with just didn't make sense. And so we very quickly cut bait and decided we would go with something that we could all work on together and left this idea on the, on the drawing room, on the cutting room floor, on the drawing room table. Um, but you see that, yes, we, we were kind of looking for this and interpretively one of the things we wanted to show with this was, especially what was gonna be visually dynamic about this, was all of those black dots that appeared and disappeared, right? So whereas with customary genealogy, those really don't show you anything, here, 
the kind of succession of black dots appearing and disappearing, that like very high child mortality was going to be the dominant visual impression created by this map of genealogy. So that was our idea. It didn't work. We fell back on traditional genealogy. But I did feel like the traditional family tree at least did something. It showed us that people may, tried to maintain connections. It reinterpreted this accounting data in a way that highlighted belonging and connection, or at least attempts at belonging and connection. And maybe most importantly, it showed the limitations of the family tree as a form for representing these kinds of families. So hopefully somebody else who has more energy, more ideas, more technical capacity than we had at that moment can come up with something like this or better to represent this material in a way that I think is even more historically appropriate, um, accurate, and, and resonant, right? But yes, we were playing with these ideas and then had to fall back on them because you, know, you have so much money and time and you're working with particular people with particular skills and that's what we can do. Please. Thank you so much for the talk. Um, my question has to do with scale. Mm -hmm. And so you spent a lot of time talking about how these new methods of mapping and creating timelines enable different types of narratives um, mm -hmm. in talking about history and different constructions of meaning. And I wonder, at any point, did you feel that maps or these types of timelines are reductive of particular practices, um, and in what ways? Um, and you said something during your talk that was very striking in terms of um, the inability to measure things like psychological trauma mm -hmm. and things uh, that are not inscribed in a sense. Yeah. So this right. these methods rely on, on information that already exists in some ways. Absolutely. So how would you reconcile things like oral history that are passed on in ways that are sometimes not inscribed? Yeah. So that's a great question uh, and a question I ask myself a lot. Um, because I work in the 18th century, oral history is not quite as useful to me as it would be for someone who worked in the 19th century, later 19th century, 20th century. Um, for my first book, I used a lot of the oral histories that were recorded in the late 19th century and early 20th century to shape my intuition about what I might be seeing in the, in the inscri inscribed sources of the 18th century. So it's not as if I rule it out. But what that oral history doesn't show you, again, is something that can be appropriately fit within my genre rules. Right? So, and I'm, the reason I call it a genre rule is because I'm saying it, it is linear. Right? It's got a limitation. It's intelligible within a certain community of interpretation. But it's not the entire truth of the human past. Right? There are lots of ways we could represent the relationship between the past, the present, and the future that are not on the timeline. Um, but I have a professional commitment to using that. Right? Um, literary scholars don't necessarily, right? Um, so yes, I see those limitations, but I'm also committed to kind of stretching the, the boundaries of my own genre to see what I can do with those limitations, right? Um, limitations are kind of great opportunities for creativity, right? That's where you can find out what's possible, what's not possible, what can be made intelligible that wasn't before, but always working kind of on that edge. Um, so I can kind of find a specific example for you. I don't have, I mean, mostly it's just that I'm trying to recognize always what the limitations of this, of this form are. So yes, maps are reductive. Yes, the timeline is reductive. But here's what it can do that it hasn't necessarily been utilized for before. And maybe we can take it to another edge where you can bring in some other kind of information that will, that will do something else. Um, but as you can see, I'm, I'm kind of very ecumenical in my approach to, to the questions and, and how we answer them. 
So I always like to hear great ideas. And if I hear your great idea about kind of how you want to represent something that, that is relevant to you know, my material, I'll certainly try to figure out how I can work that into the design schemas that are intelligible to the people I speak to and that need to read and evaluate my work and acknowledge it as history. But this is something that Vivek works with, This is especially as a historian who does a lot of films, trying to figure out when is it no longer history? When can my fellow historians no longer recognize it as something that's within their genre? And do I care, <laughs> right? When do I just do the other thing and not really try to convince historians that it's something they should recognize? And when do I say, you know what, actually historians could learn from this. And this, this could be incorporated into the way we practice the historical craft. Um, and so I need to find a way to talk to them, to find a way to work within our limitation, our professional limitations, um, conventional limitations to convince them. Do you want to add to that? Because I mean, I know you're, you're doing exactly the same thing. I actually had a, had a question to throw in. Okay. Um, dodge that one. That's the way to uh, <laughs> You don't want to hide, you want to pile on. Yeah. Um, and, and that actually follows on uh, one of the, the comments that when you were referring to this as, as kind of a, a failed or shelved uh, project, um, and you mentioned the working with web designers who just didn't have um, just a basic sense of some of the underpinning, right? Um, yeah, which more theoretical. I mean, it's not really criticism. Yeah, them, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Um, but I guess my question is a question to you as an educator, mm. and this is something that I think is relevant to CMS as, as a program graduate program, mm -hmm. um, what would you, you know, ideally see, I mean, we, it's true that, that when we're working in these teams um, to create this kind of work, um, that there are particular people who, who play a particular role and have particular strengths that they bring to the team. You know, in, in large-scale film production, it's the same thing, you have the grips and the actors, and, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm all of that, um, but in a sense, uh, you know, there's also a certain amount of overlap mm. to, m to make these kinds of teams work. And in a yeah. traditional film yeah. crew, someone who, do, who is a, a grip, someone who mounts lights, mm. um, has a sense of the concerns of the lighting crew, yeah, that's right. and the lighting crew has a sense of the concerns of the camera person mm -hmm. in order to light a scene in a particular way and mm -hmm. they develop a certain overlap in knowledge between those different roles so that yeah. they can function most effectively. Mm -hmm. So um, as an educator, what would you want to see in terms of young scholars, um, young scholars knowledge base in technology or young technologists mm -hmm. knowledge base in terms of yeah. scholarship that uh, you know, and how would you how would you put that into practice in, as as an educator? But I, but I think that's what you guys are doing here in a way that's kind of far advanced, certainly on what Harvard's doing, um, which is to just put those people in conversation, and you know, people kind of learn the skills that they have some kind of you know, inclination or aptitude for, but but to make sure that people know how to talk to each other. Because I think the most important thing for creating that overlap, well, A, is the humility of knowing that people know things you don't know, which oftentimes in academic environments is like the rarest of things, right? Um, people always want to be the smartest person in the room, and that's stupid. But, you know, so approaching people to say, like, hey, look, 
here's what I'm interested in. I think you know something I don't know, but I think it would be useful to this. So you teach people how to collaborate. Then having people learn enough of other people's language and skills so that they can talk to them, right? So I had to learn enough about cartography, and I trained um, with some geographers at, at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, and was in this countermapping collective for um, for a semester, well, a year actually, um, to be able to kind of learn enough of the language of cartography that I could translate what I was thinking um, to the cartographers that I ended up working with. So. You're asking, I think, particularly about how you create that institutionally. I think more um, time, space, and funding for these intersectional working groups would be, would be crucial, right? So if several people, maybe you have a threshold of five, six, 10 people who want to come together and lobby for the resources to create an intersectional working group, and they say, look, it's these three units and I want to bring people from these three units together to study this particular problem, and the department gives that money, right? And the department arranges that space and that location. I think that would help immensely. Um, that way, the department doesn't feel like it already has to know everything that everybody's got to learn or has to do, but that can come from below, right? Um, because as I said, as I, the way I've been working is I find the people I need, right? It's kind of just-in-time production. Um, but if the resources were there, the space were there, the, and the, the, the attitude, uh, the kind of the positive attitude were there for that, I do think that could happen much more quickly. And people would learn the things they needed to learn, and we wouldn't be able to predict necessarily what they were going to create, but we would know they would have the time and space and the, and the, and the collaborative skills to create. You know? Other questions? Other questions? Well, then, um, actually, we're right on time. Oh, thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you.